All right, Heidi, would you pray for us? Yes. Lord God, we thank you so much for bringing us here today to learn, to grow, to know more of your word. We pray that you would anoint Pastor Mike as he's teaching us and just help us to hear what he's saying, to understand and to apply it to what we already know and be willing to um, just assimilate it in and change our views and just listen to you, Lord. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So what we're going to see here in Exodus, well, one of the things I want to point out, if you've noticed, um, there are some stories that are very familiar to all of us that I have not really touched on. Like, I, you know, there, there was a lot in Genesis we didn't look at specifically. And it's uh, similar here. I, I mean, the burning bush is something I think that we're all f- rather familiar with. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I ever skip anything and it's confusing to you, I tend to skip the things that we cover ad nauseum. And I do say ad nauseum. Because when people are like, let's do some Old Testament stories, they go to Noah's Ark, they go to the Burning Bush, they go to these the same ones. But what I, what I want to do is I want to look at some weird stories that actually are very important because they are telegraphing what God is going to do. So the apostles in the New Testament... Um, as they are starting to make connections about who Jesus is and the covenants, you know, in Galatians, he, Paul talks about how Hagar and Sarah were um, a metaphor for the covenants. And, and he gets into this theology, and it's a very strange way of considering that story. What, what, what they are doing there is they're seeing Christ in the Old Testament. And, and what I want to point out is that it, we don't have to wait to the New Testament to see this kind of thing happen. Hmm. Okay, so right in the beginning, in Genesis and Exodus, you see God essentially, through the lives of his children, telling you what he's going to do. He's showing you, these are the things that I'm going to do. Uh, one of them is the story of Abraham, right? Remember Abraham went down into Egypt once before. Do you guys remember why he went to Egypt? There was a famine, right? Okay, so then he goes down there, and he does the thing where he tells everyone that his wife is actually his sister, which actually isn't a lie. Um, And then she goes into Pharaoh's house, and then God uses that to destroy Pharaoh's house. And people are very, you know, people talk about how Abraham is wicked for this. But actually what, what, what God is doing is he's showing forth what he's going to do in the Exodus. It's foreshadowing. His children are going to go down into Egypt. There's going to be a famine. Uh, God's household is going to be mistreated, and then God is going to judge the Egyptians. Yes? The deceit. You mm-hmm. see, the story may be a foreshadowing, but doesn't justify Abraham's deceit. Okay, I would argue that his deception was perfectly biblical, but that's going to take us too far afield right now. I realize that well, she was, in a way, his sister. Yes. His sister that he's married to. But it was deception. It was. Amen. And what, what we've already seen is that there's been... The, the, the characters in Genesis who are good have done a lot of deception. Yes. Is that, is that what you're well, yeah, there's a mixture and an intertwining of both those ideas, yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah. I'm going to start lying to you. <laughs> lying would be wicked. You can deceive him, though. Okay. That's it. No, Peter Lightheart one time in an article tried to explain the biblical difference between lie and, and deception, and it was very unsatisfying. Um, and then I taught it to my seventh graders uh, in, a, in a biblical ethics class at Providence. And then I, I got a call from a parent on Monday because their daughter had lied to them and, and was trying to justify it by calling it deceptional. <laughs> my Bible teacher at school. Okay, so one of the other strange stories is found in Genesis 31. If you turn there, this is when um, Jacob is fleeing from Laban. 
Um, and you have this very odd account in, in verses 33 to 35 of chapter 31, <laughs> where, where uh, Laban's daughter steals the household gods, okay? As they're fleeing, she steals this treasure. And because household gods would be considered treasure, uh, they're going to be made out of some kind of precious metal. They're going to be very important to the people. It's very strange that um, they have household gods if they're supposed to be Yahweh worshippers. But she steals them, and then Laban, right, this is more deception. Laban comes and says, hey, you stole my household gods, and she deceives him. She says, no, I didn't do it. And, and then what, what, he goes through tent by tent trying to find these things, and then he comes to his daughter Rachel, who's sitting on them, and then she lies and says, uh, it's actually the way of women, and I can't, I can't get up. And she has them all along. So, so she's sitting on the household gods and making them unclean. Right? She's tearing down the gods of Laban's household. And, and oddly enough, this story, which we think we understand on the surface of it, Laban is a liar, his daughter is a liar, they're all a bunch of wicked sinners who need Jesus. Okay, I don't disagree with that on, on, its, on the face of it. But actually what she is doing is she is doing what God is going to do to Israel. She's defiling the household gods of Laban. Okay, he ought not to have those household gods. Um, and when Israel leaves Egypt, they plunder the Egyptians. So she's foreshadowing the fact that the Israelites are going to not only destroy the household of Israel or Egypt and defile their gods, but they're going to also plunder them. So already what you see in Genesis and Exodus is, is that God is telling stories in such a way that he has these themes, he has these metaphors, he has these this poetic way of using real history to foreshadow future events. And when you slow down and you study Genesis very carefully, you not only see these things pop up all over in the first five books of Moses, um, but, but you also uh, see it throughout all of Scripture. And I would also say that part, part of the reason you do see this foreshadowing is because Moses is the one who compiled the first five books. Okay, now, the, the, they already had a written literature at this point, because if you, live in, you don't live in Egypt and not have a written, some form of written uh, scripts, right? So when Moses wrote the five books of Moses, he, he got the information partially from the tent of meeting where he met with the Lord, but partially from works they already had on hand. And so he edited the material in order to tell a particular story. So it's, it's not an accident. <laughs> Look at this kind of service. Oh, no, thank you, though. Thank you. That's very kind. I appreciate that. She'll take the cream. Thank you very much. Look at this service. Whatever we're paying you, we're going to double it. Um, okay, where was I? Yes, okay, so you see this foreshadowing already. You see the fact that, that uh, Moses is selecting his material very carefully. And, and this is also very important because, you know, Luke, in the beginning of his gospel, says he, he studied these things very carefully and he gave an orderly account. Well, that's exactly what Moses did. Moses studied these things very carefully and he gives an orderly account. And, and, and you see a great deal of skill in God and Moses and what they're doing here to foreshadow the Exodus. Okay, so the Exodus. So the Exodus story, right, it's the second book of the Bible, 
you, you, it, it, it becomes a theme now throughout the rest of Scripture. Exodus stories are all over the place. God coming and, and destroying enemies to free his people um, and lead them out uh, into freedom. It becomes almost uh, a metaphor for salvation itself, right? We're called, we, we were, for freedom we were set free. We were like slaves in the house of Egypt. And, yet, and Jesus comes down out of heaven and, and slays the, the gods of the household of Satan and, and takes all the kingdoms and plunders the, the Egyptians, essentially. And, and you see all these themes in Jesus' life. Now, the specifics. <laughs> you dropped your phone. Now, Israel has been in Egypt for over two centuries when the book of Exodus begins. Israel is prospering. She is multiplying. The first verses of the book tell us that the uh, 70 sons of Israel went to Egypt along with the members of their household. Now, this is an important detail that is often overlooked. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 and 5, we're told that the Israelites went to Egypt and there are 70 sons who did. Now, if you go back to the Tower of Babel, there were 70 nations. Here's a question. Does, is it 70 sons? I thought they, they said 70 descendants. 70 persons. Yeah. So I'm just referring to the whole group as the sons of God. Okay. <laughs> it's important to include yes. the other gender. Sure, which is there in the word man. Okay, okay. Um, so, so the 70 represents uh, the 70 nations. Okay, so the 70 nations at the Tower of Babel and the 70 persons. Um, and this is a connection that is made often in the Old Testament that people don't realize. There is this reference back to the 70 uh, nations at the Tower of Babel and what they were trying to do. And when this number 70 appears and there's either 70 wicked people or nations or armies or whatever, or multiples of such, <laughs> doing their Babel thing versus uh, God is always replacing them with his own children. Okay, So you have this remnant who goes down to Egypt and the number of se number 70 appears and it's not an accident. Okay, We're going to come back to this later on. Yeah. Number 70, we're in the New Testament. The number 70? Does it occur? Is there a number? Jesus sent the 70 out. Well, that's why I was thinking there was a 70 apostles. Thank you, James. Yeah, I was like, what I was, was like, that? Where is that? Somebody sent somebody 70 something. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was Jesus! Okay, so where, where is that? Because I was looking for it. And, and I'm going to say right now, this is one of those oddities that has been pointed out to me again and again and, and what happens is it keeps being pointed out to me and I, I don't I kind of vaguely understand the import but it's this is one of those things with biblical theology where in its development at this point this is one of those things people have just noticed and we're not totally sure what it means exactly we know that there's some reference back to where God is replacing the wicked nations with righteous nations like that's pretty much the idea of what? The idea of what are you referring to? Of the 70. the 70. So there were 70 that rebelled, and then this number 70 keeps coming back up because God is undoing the, what the wicked nations have done. Okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, da, 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 What's the same thing with 40? 40. 40, exactly. Mm -hmm. 40 comes 40 back. More prominent, yeah, yeah, three days. Yeah. Jonah in his three days, Jesus his three days, the 40 mm -hmm. years in the... Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so... After Joseph and his brothers all die, Israel is still being blessed and is still prospering in the land of Goshen. They are fruitful. They are increasing greatly. Actually, this is an exact verse. So Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, it's lost on us, uh, but in the Hebrew, we, we look at this. It says, fruitful, 
increased greatly, multiplied exceedingly, became numerous, filled the land. Okay? These are seven words in Hebrew that all mean essentially the same thing. Right? They're multiplying ways of telling us that Israel is multiplying, and it's seven different Hebrew words. So it's this perfection. It's this glorious, God-blessed fruitfulness, which is exactly what he told them to do uh, after, after Noah came out of the ark. He said, go forth, multiply, fill the earth. And so what you see is that they are exceedingly doing that, even though they are slaves. I'm just thinking, linguistically often, but mind says, multiplied greatly, became extremely powerful, filled the land. When there's repetition like that, uh-huh. basically that usually is for emphasis, it's not yeah. just, I mean that is like... Yes, he really he wants say us. Big. Yes, <laughs> he really, really wants us to recognize the fact that they're fulfilling the cultural mandate, even though they are in slavery. It was huge. Mm-hmm. And later during the exile, this is going to be something that is important. Even if you're slaves in, Go- in the land of Goshen and you're being mistreated by the government, God will still prosper His people. Okay. So those of us who live in exile—well, we don't live in exile—but the exiles later on in the in the story of Israel are going to need to hear this kind of thing, okay? So the Edemic race, Israel, is multiplying and they are filling the land. They are filling the land to such an extent that it's becoming a problem. So a new king arises who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't remember his history, doesn't care, okay? He doesn't care about the history. He doesn't care about what uh, the Israelites have done for for the Egyptians in the past. Actually, Pharaoh at this point owes a great deal to them because if you remember during the famine, um, essentially the Egyptians sold themselves into slavery to their own kings in order to eat bread. And so this is partially why the Egyptian pharaohs are so um, megalomaniacs, I suppose. Like they are, they're rulers in their land unlike rulers in other lands because the people are literally enslaved to them because they don't own personal property, they don't own land, Everything is, is owned by Everything Pharaoh. Everything belongs to the king. I yeah. Mean, they're all powerful. Yes. And in, and in this case, exceedingly so. And so he forgets his history. This is a problem for people generally. And he's now accusing them of doing things that they're not doing. He's, he says, well, if an enemy comes and attacks us, you will side with them and we will lose. And so he's trying to protect the state of Egypt by mistreating the Israelites. He wants to deal with the Israelite problem. <laughs> like a little Hitler, uh, we got we have to have a final solution. The Jewish problem. Yeah, the Jewish problem. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. Um, I know this is way probably way off topic. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, what year was the Exodus? To, you know, we, do you know what year that was? Off the top of my head, no. Okay. Do we know anything about writing systems at that time? And did the Jews have their own alphabet? Were they using whatever the Egyptians used? No, I, I think it was oral, orally handed down. You don't think they had a writing? I think they may have had a writing system similar to what the Egyptians had, if they had one at all. I think it was so oral. I th- think that's what Moses used. Yeah, I think if you look at the structure of the five books of Moses, it looks an awful lot like or, or, or like a oral tradition, if that makes any sense. If you yes. study it linguistically. Yeah, I don't remember the year off the top of my head. A long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. I'm kidding. Um, if they had any kind of writing system, they would have used the Egyptian system. Because the Egyptians were sort of the rulers of the world. And, and just like, you know, just like 
At one point, everybody speaks German. German is like the intellectual language. Latin's the intellectual language. This happens throughout generations. My guess is the intellectual language at the time was Egyptian. And their writing system was probably what everyone used. So the oral traditions of Israel is what Moses used. Okay. So, you know, elsewhere in the, in the first five books, Joshua and, and then later in the latter prophets, Ezekiel, mention the fact that while they were in Egypt, the Israelites worshipped idols. So they did not stay wholly true to Yahweh while they were in it, while they were slaves. Now, how does God treat his people when they go astray in this fashion? He, dis- he disciplines them, okay? So part of all of this stuff that's going on is actually their own discipline. So sometimes when we go to the story, we think, oh, the poor, the poor Israelites, you know, they're just so innocent as, and, and white and pure. But they're actually not. They're idol worshipers. And so God is, is disciplining them through these things while at the same time destroying um, Egypt. So you see that whenever there's judgment, whenever there's discipline, there's always grace and hope and deliverance at exactly the same time. Because he's punishing them, or disciplining them, I should say, but he's also going to deliver them. Um, he's using the Egyptians to, to discipline his children, but he's also going to destroy the Egyptians. And this, hello, is the exilic period to a, to a T. <laughs> this is exactly what happens. Okay. So then what we have... Uh, is that the king, to deal with the Jewish problem, says, okay, well, let's, let's uh, uh, midwives, I want you to put all these little babies to death. And the midwives don't do it. They fear God, and so they don't. And so what we see is more deception. They, they are brought before Pharaoh, and they say to Pharaoh, well, those Jewish women are just too vibrant and, and full of vigor, and we, they, we, by the time we get there, the kids are just born. What do, we, what do you want us to do? Um, we'll, you know... Infanticide will only go so far with infanticide, buddy. Um, so he then comes up with this plan of just casting them all into the waters. So now what we're going to do is we're going to just take all the babies and chuck them into the, into the river. Um, and, and this actually does occur. So they're slaughtering the Hebrew babies, um, which is a lot like what happens later when Jesus is born, right? Uh, they send out soldiers and kill all the children in and around Bethlehem. And so that you see that these things are already foreshadowing the coming of the, of the Christ. Okay, so um, there is one woman, Jochebed, jo- Jochebed, 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 I don't know, Moses' mom. <laughs> she is going to preserve the seed of the woman, right? It's an interesting story that the father is not involved at this point. It keeps referring to Moses' mother. Why? Well, it's, it's, a, it's an echo of Genesis where God promised to Eve that the seed of the woman would destroy the seed of the serpent. And so here you have a story of a woman, right? This is very important, who's defying the, the, um, the Pharaoh by what she's doing. And this is a woman who's simply trying to take care of her child uh, and love him, and he is beautiful, and, and she is doing this thing, and it's very dangerous, okay? And so she's one of the first female heroes early in the Bible that often gets overlooked. We talk a lot about Moses, but Moses' mom was awesome, okay? So she makes a tiny ark, and, and the word um, for basket is the same word for ark, and is only used twice in the Old Testament. And it's the ark, and it's the basket that Moses is put into. So he's put into a tiny ark, 
And even when it describes her making it and covering the outside with pitch, it's exactly the way the ark was made. And so Moses' mom makes a tiny ark because she, I, I think whether she understood it or not, this is what God does when he wants to save a remnant. He makes them an ark. So she takes this ark and puts it in the same waters that is killing all of the Moses' brothers, sisters, and cousins. So just like the flood destroyed all the people of the earth, and yet Noah was saved, on the same waters that are destroying all the rest of the Israelites, Moses is in a tiny ark being saved. Okay? And, and this is deep waters, but it's, it's fantastic. It, it's unbelievably good storytelling. <laughs> so all around Moses, the children of Israel are drowning, but Moses' ark passes through the waters of death and arises, arrives at safety. Um, Why? Yeah. I was busy looking stuff up, so... Jacobin. 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 No, I missed, no, no, I no, okay, go ahead. The Exodus, 1300 BC. But... 1300 BC, some say. Okay, so... Go back. Wait, where, do, where is this story about Israelites drowning in the Nile? Yeah. You're saying that Moses was saved while the Israelites were drowning. I don't know where that is. Okay, well, the Israelites... I missed it. Okay, well, I'm not saying that... Moses was floating on a basket in the river at the same time that there were babies drowning in the river. He, he, he ordered the Egyptians to cast the Hebrew babies into the river. Okay, so that's what you were That's what to. I'm referring to. So the, the same water... No, no, no. I'm not talking like a bunch of ba bobbing babies in the water and there's this little art floating through it. That's, that's, that's gross. That's what I envisioned. Okay, good. So his little ark... <laughs> come safely to the uh, king's household, uh, Pharaoh's household. And then what you have is another woman, uh, and, and this is what I, I love. Even the Egyptian women are better than the Egyptian men. The Hebrew women are, are standing up to Pharaoh, but even his own daughter is standing up to him. Because what, where, why does she have the authority to save a Hebrew baby? Right? Now, now, there is a great deal to be said about this, about the system. And, and, and the magistrates and how that whole thing functioned. Because she might actually have the legal uh, ability to say this person is saved. Because later when Moses goes out and he's, he's, he's striking down people and he's doing these things, we're going to come back to that. But there's something here about maybe she has the authority to do this. Maybe within the hierarchical structure of the government, because she's Pharaoh's daughter, she can actually say I, this person will be spared. Because it, there's no explanation as to why she gets away with this. But then again, ladies and gentlemen, after the midwife deception, now we have even more deception. Moses' sisters sees what happens and says, hey, you want me to get some random Hebrew woman to feed this baby for you and maybe you could pay her? And lo and behold, Moses' mother gets her child back from death, uh, just like Abraham got Isaac back, just like Yahweh will get Jesus back. And so she gets her baby back and she's then paid to breastfeed him, which is what she wanted to do anyway. So it's amazing. And then, which very much like Hannah and Eli, she gives Moses to uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and he is now raised as an Egyptian prince. Okay? And, and he, he was a court magician himself. We're going to come back to that. He was raised in the wisdom of the Egyptians, which was occultic and um, very uh, full of a lot of uh, accumulated wisdom and science at the time. Um, but also was used to do very dark things, as we're, as we're going to see. So he's saved. He's saved out of the waters. Now, now we're going to come to 
um, th- this story. How many of you guys have heard that Moses is a murderer? How many of you guys heard that Moses is referred to as a murderer? Okay, Moses is not a murderer. That it, nowhere in scripture does it ever say that Moses is a murderer. What, what this is, is, is modern Christians, uh, pietistic ones, overly pietistic ones, going back to stories in the Old Testament, ethics that they don't understand, and, and applying a modern conception of it. Okay, this is like the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not murder, um, not thou shalt not kill. Right? So how many times have you been to a church? I like to check the church. It tells me a little something about their orthodoxy. You see the Ten Commandments and it says thou shalt not kill, which is actually not what the Word of God says. So we see... What does the Word of God say? It says thou shalt not murder, which is different than killing. Okay. So Moses goes out to visit his people. It it does not say that he's never done it before. Right? There's all this mythology about Moses as if he was raised... Right? Thank you, Charlton Heston. Moses was raised as if he didn't know that he was uh, a Hebrew. That's not true. Uh, he was, and also that he commits this murder, but he doesn't. He goes out, and what he does is he sees this, this Egyptian striking a Hebrew, and then he strikes uh, the, the Egyptian guy and kills him. Now, the word for strike is the same. So he uses enough force to kill this person, and that person was using the same amount of force on the Hebrew. So he was trying to kill the Hebrew guy. He was hitting him with the kind of force that kills a person. And in order to now rise up and defend God's people, here is your savior, here is your judge. <clears throat> he strikes down this Egyptian, buries him in the sand. The very next day, he comes out there, and now he sees two Hebrews fighting. And he tries to stop them, and one of them says, oh, you're going to kill us? Like, you killed the Egyptian. And then, right, the, the thing is known. He didn't cover it up well enough. Um, well, actually, cover it up is even the wrong word. He, he put him in the sand. He we literally covered him. I mean, he literally covered him with sand. Yeah. So why did he do that? Anyway. So then what happened? I want to argue what he did was not right. You would argue that what he did was not right? Well, yeah, because a cover-up means something's wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, he buried him in the sand. Did he bury him in the sand with, like, a funeral? No, he's clearly trying to hide it because of what happens next. He's like, I got away with it. I, no one knows about yeah. this thing I did. With, you know, and there, therefore, I'm good yeah. to go. And I, Oh, shoot, people know what I did. Oh, no, now I need to flee the land of Egypt. And, I mean, if he'd done what was right, then his response to these two jabronis yeah. would have been... Uh, yeah, no, uh, that guy was uh, was definitely trying to off one yeah. you, and I came in and defended him, so right. no, I'm not just going to, like, randomly kill so, you jabronis, yeah. so, but, uh, I, so, you know. yeah. So I would say that what happens is at least manslaughter. Because when you hit somebody, if you're fighting someone and you hit them and then they die, that wasn't your intent, was to murder them. But you hit them with enough force to kill them, that is manslaughter. So he does hide it afterwards, but but he's not a murderer. He did not go out with this intent to murder someone and execute this person. And he wasn't, I mean, he was justified in defending him because he's a prince in the house of Egypt. He, he is a magistrate after all. But I mean, the way it works is magistrates aren't supposed to be <laughs> striking people <laughs> themselves. They're supposed to be hauling them in to court, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, but... Um, and obviously, he's not acting within his authority. Of well, yeah, the so, judicial system. Right. So let's turn to act, right. So let's let the uh, let's let the apostles tell us Acts chapter seven. <laughs> 
Acts chapter 7. The first martyr is going to tell us. So chapter 7, verse 24 to 25. Okay, it says, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, I think that those two verses complicate the story, that Moses is doing something he shouldn't do, that he's a murderer, right? He, he's standing up for an oppressed man. Um, he's defending him. He's avenging him. He's striking down the Egyptians. And this is an opportunity now for him to rise up and deliver the Israelites. But they reject him. They say, no, you're not. Who made you a ruler over us? Well, it comes to find out God does, right? And so there's a, there's a reason he has to flee and stay away for 40 years. And it's not because of what he's done is wrong. I, I, I will argue what he does is not wrong. He's standing up for, for oppressed people and commits this act. And he does try to hide it because he is going to get into trouble. But I don't think what he did was wrong. I think what he did was right. I think it was a time for the Hebrews to rise up and overthrow their masters. And they rejected him. Okay? The problem wasn't what he did. The problem was that Israelites rejected him. Well, they weren't ready to be... They weren't ready yet. They weren't ready yet. So, what happens is instead of... Now he has to go into exile for 40 years, which is what happens to Israel later, right? They're in the desert for 40 years. So, not only... So, they're not ready yet, and so they have to be... Apparently, they have to suffer some more before they're ready to be led out by... um, Moses, which later you see when he comes and he's trying to lead them, that he runs into similar problems with them where they're, they're, they're resisting his leadership, which is Stephen's point. Stephen's point in his speech, when he's mentioning Moses, is because saviors come and, and Israel rejects them. Again and again and again, you rejected Moses. And he doesn't say you rejected Moses the second time he came. He says you rejected Moses the first time he came. I think that that's very important to note. Okay. Because... Uh, because because we like to say that he's a murderer and we say all these things that aren't true about him, right? The problem isn't what Moses did. The problem was what how Israel responded to what Moses did. And that is what I would like everyone to understand. And, and I think, honestly, I'll, and I will defend this position, because I think what we do is we, get, we, we, we read these stories and we don't know how to... We make false judgments. We make wrong judgments. We're used to a certain culture. We're used to Moses being like, well, he's a lot like Paul... Uh, but that's not what happened at all. Moses is not Paul. Paul participated in, the, in, a, in a wicked and evil murder of an innocent man and later was converted by God. Moses was prepared to be a savior of the people of God, and, and when he rose up to do it, they rejected him. And then he had to go into exile for 40 years and come back and try it again, and he still gets resistance, as we're going to see. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, I mean, the idea that somebody's doing something that they intend to be salvation for God mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is commentating that that was right. But it says he right. he's, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God yes, was giving them supposed. Some, yeah, and, and and on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and and so the problem is that they reject him. That's the problem. That's the problem that Stephen says right there in Acts chapter seven. Okay, we're going to move on now. So he thought it because it was true. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> so what what we see here is is that again with Stephen's speech, Stephen's speech is is remarkable for this regard because he he's setting up the, you know, at first when the people are the Israelites are listening to him, they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're all into what he's saying, but he kind of pulls the rug out from underneath them. Because his point in that speech is that they have always rejected the person that God sent to save them. Mm. Uh, and, and, and as the, the speech goes on, they begin to understand what he's actually saying. Okay? And, and I think it's important that we, we let, like Lot and Moses and other characters from Genesis and Exodus, we let the scriptures, the New Testament, tell us what God thinks about them. Right? Because why, how is Lot a righteous person, for goodness sakes? And yet he is called Lot. Moses was a liberator that was rejected by his people. Okay, so then Moses goes to Midian, and what's the first thing that he does there? Well, he comes to a well, and there are men who are accosting women, and because, as we've already seen, he stands up for the oppressed, he now defends these women at the well. And I think what you see is those two stories actually are supposed to show us his character. He is a man who stands up for the oppressed. This is what he does. So now he goes into Midian, he does it, and instead of rejecting him, like, just like the Jews rejected Jesus, but he was accepted amongst the Gentiles. The Jews rejected Paul, he was accepted amongst the Gentiles. The Jews rejected Moses, and now he's accepted amongst the Gentiles. The Gentiles accept him, they make him one of their own, they give him a bride, and now he's a shepherd. Okay, And he's a faithful shepherd, as we see, by his continual action of protecting the weak um, and those who cannot defend themselves. So we see at the garden, or, or we see at the well, uh, a garden-like story. Here's this oasis in the desert. It, it's like a garden, and Adam meets his Eve, okay? Uh, Jesus meets his bride. You, you see this theme, I suppose, play itself out here, which we've already covered, so we won't cover some more. Uh, okay, so... Let me see here. Okay, so the burning bush. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the burning bush here just shortly. So after 40 years, now Israel has suffered a great deal, and God hears them, and God is ready to try to save them again. Okay, you rejected the first time, but here's the second time, because God never gives up on his people. So he comes uh, in a burning bush, um, and, you, and you notice a few things about the bush. The bush is on fire, but the bush is not consumed, because God is a consuming fire that does not need fuel. He, he is self-sufficient. God doesn't eat. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't drink water. He doesn't need fuel. He doesn't need the bush to burn. He can, he can be a fire that indwells a bush, that, that rests upon a bush and doesn't consume the bush. Just like now, the fire comes down out of heaven on Pentecost. It dwells in each of us and yet does not consume us. Okay? He doesn't need us to feed the fuel, to, to fuel the fire. He's self-sufficient. Okay, so now what we do is, we, for the first time, God reveals his name. And his name is Yahweh, his name is the Lord, uh, and he does the things he does in order that people would know that he is the Lord. He also states that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How would they know who they are all this time later unless they had handed down the traditions, right? They have accumulated the stories. Well, we know who Abraham, we know who Isaac is, and we know who Jacob is. And so here the God of our fathers from the ancient past, because at this point it is ancient past, um, has come down now and revealed himself to Moses to send him back to Egypt where he was rejected to save the people. And um, 
you know, th there's a lot to be said about this. Okay, so the court magicians later are going to do some very odd things. They're going to take a stick and throw it on the ground and turn it into a snake. Uh, they're going to be able to turn the, the Nile red. They're going to be able to do the gnat thing. So, so there's something about the, the magi of the court of Egypt. I think where Moses already knows how to do that stuff. The fact that he's there in the wilderness and God says, okay, throw your stick on the ground, and Moses doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to do any sort of magi magic to make it do anything. It, God is doing it. And this is the kind of thing that God will do later with the prophets. He'll, the, a prophet will tell a man to put his hand into his shirt and to pull it out again, and it's covered in leprosy. Because God is a God who doesn't have to have like magic tricks. He doesn't have to have a, a, a mediator. He doesn't have to have what he's doing work through somebody or some incantations or something. God does what he wants. Right? Jesus walks on the water. Jesus quiets the storm. God controls nature in, in an instant without having a, any kind of mediator between him and it. So Moses, I think, is shocked because these things are just happening to him while he's standing there, and there's, he's not doing anything. And then, right, uh, he, his hand turns leprous, and then it, it goes back to normal. Now, Moses is terrified of going back to Pharaoh. I think it's because he was raised in his house and he knows what kind of man he is. So he is terrified. And so he argues with God that I don't want to do this thing that you're telling me to do. And so he says, fine, you will be like God to your brother Aaron. And Aaron will be the one who speaks um, and, 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 and is actually carrying the message to the people. And I will speak to you and you will speak to him and you will be like God to him. And, and so God is angry with Moses. And, and you see something here that's very, you see this wrestling back and forth. Um, this debating between, like, why is God like listening to Moses debate him? Right? I mean, it just, and, and there's something here about the divine counsel that God has in heaven, like you see at the beginning of Job 1, where there are some men who are invited higher up into the status of being in the divine counsel, where they're actually, like, like, magistrates would debate with a king. The prophets are debating with God about what he's going to do. This is why later Moses comes to him and says, How dare, why are you doing this thing? Far be it from you to do this thing. Well, you know, where did he get the status? Like the prophet Elijah later, like Jesus later, there, there, are, there are statuses. The status of certain prophets arises to the level where you're going into the inner council of God and you're actually able to debate with him. Um, not just anybody can do what Moses is doing here. And God finally gets frustrated with him and, and re, like, relents, but, but he does it sort of begrudgingly almost. And, and I think what you see in these interactions here are something that's very rare in the Old Testament, very rare in human history, therefore. And, and it just lets us know, like, God is not, he wrestles with man like he did with Israel. He doesn't just, it, it's, he, he lets men rise to the level where they're debating with him and, and learning from him and, ma and making God have to, in a sense, explain himself to them. Um, he's not just, you know, it's a very personal way of dealing with people, um, which is fascinating to me. Uh, this idea that he just is on top of the fiery mountain, right, and he just makes these, if you get too close to the mountain, you're all going to die, like in Exodus 24, which is what the common Israelites experience. Occasionally, there are men who get to go up on to the top of the mountain where the fire is and aren't burned and destroyed by it, right? In fact, Moses meets with God in the tent of meeting and comes out and he has to cover his face because the, the glory reflected from the Lord is so 
amazing because not, not everyone gets to go into the presence of God and literally argue with him. Um, I think that when James says at the end of his book, um, take the prophets as your example, he's talking about prayer there. Um, there, there is an essence in which the priesthood of all believers has this ability to debate with God in the inner council because of our status in Jesus Christ. We can get on our knees and we can say, far be it from you to do this thing. Why are you doing this thing? Um, and I think people are very uncomfortable with this notion. But I think there's a lot about us being priests in the, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth that we do not understand. God wants the kind of prayer that Moses gives here. He wants this kind of, he wants us to stand up and wrestle with him the way that he wrestled with the, these men in the Old Testament. And I think we're afraid to do that. We're, we're, we don't know that we can do that. We're not exactly sure what that looks like. And so when we talk about prayer, you know, we're not going to a vending machine, sticking a dollar in and pushing A17. That's not the idea about prayer. When we go in prayer, we're like, why, you know, how could you do this thing? Explain, like, make me understand this thing. I do not understand. Give me understanding. What about this? What about that? What about this part in your word where it says you're going to do this? When are you going to do this? And if you look at the Psalms, that's how David talks to God. You said you were going to do this. When are you going to do it? And most of us would not, I think, pray that way, right? How many of you guys would get on your knees and say, God, you said you were going to do this. What's, what's up? Well, we, we have his promises. So we're doing that. We pray his promise. Yeah. You said we're going to do this. You said it's this way. Mm-hmm. So, in essence, we do that when we're talking. Well, I would say some of us do. Some, some modern Christians do. But I think part of the reason that prayer life is so weak is because there's something about this, this idea about the prophets interacting with God that we don't understand. Well, okay, I don't want to go our class away. <laughs> no, that's what it's all about. Come on, somebody besides Laura. He's either who he says he is or he's not. No, amen. And the hardest thing for us to do mm-hmm. is take him for who he is. Yeah, accept him for right. who he is. And yeah. that, that's the hardest thing for us to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, and he is a father who has our ear, and we're supposed to boldly come into his presence and say what's on our mind. And yeah, and I think that's what most, I, I mean, a lot of Christians do that, but I wish more Christians did that. I wish most of us understood that this is what our prayer life was supposed to look like. When you see Moses interacting with uh, Yahweh here, Elijah later on, I think that's actually what it's supposed to look like. When you see um, uh, Jacob wrestling with him, I think that's what it's supposed to be like. And I hope that our prayer lives are like that. I hope it's like that. Um, opposed to the vending machine God. Um, you know, I really want to raise God, right? I mean, like when people tell me to like, um, pray that, Pray that this thing happens. I'm like, okay, I'll do that, but I'll also pray that whatever God actually wants to have happen will happen. <laughs> so you have to have this sort of, this mind where you're remembering who you're talking to, but you remember who you are who's talking to him. Um, and in Christ, we have far more um, rights, I suppose. We have far more um, uh, available to us, I think, than we realize. Okay. So I'm not even going to get too far into this because we're running out of time. But now what happens is Moses returns to the land of Egypt. And then now God begins to strike down the gods of the Egyptians one after another. Um, For example, uh, where is it? 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he comes back, he confronts Pharaoh. The Nile has been filled with the blood of the Israelite boys, and now it is turned to blood. Pharaoh has been getting rid of the male Israelite boys, but in the end, all the firstborn sons of Egypt are killed. Um, you know, the Egyptians, their gods are all represented. The frogs, the gnats, the cows, the river, all this stuff. Pharaoh himself is a god in Egypt. So what, what he does is he strikes in the air, he strikes on the land, he strikes in the water, just like that three-story house that we were talking about from creation. And he comes and he attacks the entire house of the Egyptians and tears the whole thing to the ground. He darkens the sky, they worship the sun. Uh, he does all these things to show that he is Yahweh. Okay, um, He executes judgments against the gods of Egypt. And in, in Exodus 15.11, his people say, who is like thee among the gods? Right? He, is, he is showing that he is not like other gods. He is powerful. He is in control. He is loving. He is present. He delivers his people, leads them into the wilderness, and, and nothing will defy them. The Red Sea doesn't stop him. He leads them personally by a pillar of smoke and fire. He is present with them. He feeds them with manna. He, he takes them out into the wilderness to teach Israel what he already taught Moses. Moses was out for 40 years living on a wing and a prayer, and now the entire nation is out in the wilderness living on a wing and a prayer. Um, and and he's, he's showing them not only his personal care of them, but his might over all the things that we think are going to hold us into slavery, right? I mean, think a slave in a house in, in the household of Egypt, and the entire house crumbles. Okay? That, that is an amazing thing to witness. And, and witnessing it isn't enough to convince them all to have faith in Yahweh. Uh, this is also very important. They witness unbelievable miracles. And witnessing miracles never converts anybody. The miracles themselves do not convert people. Uh, Jesus makes this point. You, I can show you signs, but signs aren't going to do it. it it's, it's the faith that you have in, in God, right? The, the miracles either encourage you to have faith, um, right? They reveal who God is. Um, but it's not the miracles themselves. I mean, look at these guys. They see, think of the things that they see, and they still go out in the wilderness and complain. They still go out in the wilderness and say, oh, God did this because he hates us. Um, and it's a terrible thing to watch Israel, after everything they've already suffered, be delivered in this way, and then go on doubting God. And hello, welcome to the Christian life. Okay, Because we are all of us just like Israel. Think of the things that we know. Think of the things we have seen. Think of the fact that the Spirit dwells upon each of us in a way it never did in the Old Testament for the common saints. Think of the fact that we're priesthood of believers. It's, it's, right, we're going into Holy Week. Think of the things that we know, and yet we still go out and we still struggle with our faith just like they did. Okay, And this is the story of the Scriptures. God is constantly proving who He is and what He's capable of and how much He cares, and, and the people of God struggle to believe it to grab hold of it, to stand upon the promises. So we should never, never, never look down upon the Israelites in the Exodus story. What we should do, as Paul says in Corinthians, is, is realize it's written down for, for our understanding, for our instruction. Right? This is what man is like who, who walks with God, and cling to him and don't turn from him, and believe in him, and, and even when it gets dark, continue to believe, and he will continue to show you that he is the God of Exodus. Okay, any questions? No, I think that was a pretty good one. <laughs> Thank you, you guys, for the pushback and the questions. Excellent, excellent conversation. You guys have a glorious day.